get out of the car, the freeway, everything stops in Israel. And they stand to attention for two minutes and they remember the death of the six million Jews in, um, in the Holocaust. Oh, so our baby that we got a month ago, Kulali, um, her previous caregiver is going to now receive the baby because the parents are going to lose their rights. The parents are doing drugs, so um, we had taken the baby. So she has a lot of problems, cannot breathe on her own, a lot of medical problems. So we stabilized her. We got her all the doctor's appointments that she had to go through and all the oxygen. CPS gave, her, gave us this baby with no oxygen. So we actually called and the Lord had actually provided somebody brought oxygen to our house and got food, heart doctor. We got her to all her doctor's appointments, so now she's uh, ready to go. So we have a family that is willing to take her in. Actually, she's not here with us tonight because they took her in uh, tonight. Even though it's the actual day is next Thursday, but because the court said they took away the parents' rights, uh, the other caregiver took the baby. So. Praise the Lord. Continue to pray for Hulali. She has a lot of challenges before her, but without our God. A lot of the children that we've adopted, they all had less than a year to live. And so we have a 28-year-old, we have a 16-year-old, two 15-year-olds, and a 12-year-old. And they only had six to a year's time to live. But God is so good that they minister to us. Can you believe that? They cannot walk, talk, or speak anything, but they teach us the love of God, and they show us. You know? And so we are thankful to God that He has opened up that avenue towards us. I think um, in June 1st, we went back to my alma mater, Anue Anue School, <laughs> where back in the day, when I was in elementary, we used to have, every year, we used to have one. Imu, yeah, we used to all make Imu. So my friend Papa Smith, his son Kealoha, works up there. So June 1st, we would have one. We all go dig the hole and bring cacao and bring whatever you like, turkey, whatever. So we get to school all night long, we get worship all night long, and we go make cacao. And so June 1st. I just got the word yesterday, so breaking news alert. <laughs> breaking news. <laughs> Another breaking news, what happened? Anything good happened out there? We found out that our country is in good hands. The economy is shooting high and the president is what? Not guilty <laughs> of all those sick charges, so praise the Lord. God is good. Tonight we're going to look at the genealogy of the king. Last week, coming off the heels of Pesach or uh, Passover, we saw that Yeshua, the Seha Elohim, which is the, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, we found that he was slain before the foundations of the world. So before the world was formed, he actually was slain already on our behalf. So we looked at the great depth and the love and the concern that Yehovah had for us. 
we saw that twice already in history, Yehovah had to reset his creation. The first time was between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where Tohu Vavohu, where the earth was cursed, and then creation happened. And then it, there was another reset when the angels who left their proper habitation came down, one third of the angels fell, and they took wives for themselves. They had children, they had offspring, and they were called the Nephilim. So Yehovah had made it where he flooded the earth and only eight human beings survived. So what we saw last week, that the prophecies concerning Yeshua's first coming all came to pass with 100% accuracy. What does that mean for us as believers? It means that all the prophecies concerning his second coming will be fulfilled with the exactness and with details that the Lord has placed in Scripture. And some of which we have seen come to pass in our lifetime. Like um, they said, Israel will bloom again. She will flourish. They're the number one exporter now of flowers and fruits and stuff. So what was barren at one time has now become flourished. They become a state which no theologian before 1930s believed that it was an actual literal prophecy that Israel would become a state again. But today, they have become a state. Hallelujah. And then as far as our studies in Genesis is concerned, we're at the eighth toldo, the toldo of Yitzchak. So because we've celebrated Easter, I wanted to again solidify the genealogy before we go back to Genesis next week. The one who was sacrificed and rose again. Today we're going to be looking at Matthew 1, 1 through 17, and Luke 3, 23-38. We're going to look at the genealogy of our King. Let us bless our Torah. Barhu et Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher v'atarbanu mikol ha'amim, ve'inatan lanu et torato, baruch ata Adonai, lo tenna Torah, lo tenna v'kadashah, lo tenna Yeshua. Abba, we thank you for keeping your word true, Lord, and we thank you that you have kept it up until this day, Lord. So many evidences, and we thank you for your Torah, the Old Testament, Lord, the books of the law, the writings, the Ketuvim, and the prophets, the Nevi'im. But we also thank you for the Vitkadashah, the New Testament writings, Lord. But most of all, we thank you for Yeshua, our Yeshua, Jesus, the Savior of the world. In His name and in His authority we pray, and we all say, Amen. So Moses, in writing the book of Genesis, he had compiled 11 records of families, and those records are called Toldots. We have the Toldots of the heavens, of Adam, of Noah, his son, and Shem, and so we're all the way up to number eight, Yitzchak. So what the Toldot is, is a genealogical line of each person that is written in the Toldot. 
Turn with me to Matthew 1.1. We're going to read Matthew 1.1. It says in Hebrew, Sefer Toldot Yeshua HaMashiach Ben David Ben Abraham. It says the scroll or the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The opening verses of Matthew contain this genealogy of Jesus. Anybody love to read genealogies? Like it's not one of the most favorite passages to read, right? Usually come to genealogy, we did blah, 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 blah. We don't turn there to read our devotionals, right? We just go there and somehow we end up speed reading, right? That's what we do, some of us do. We just skip right through the whole thing. And just go straight to the birth of Jesus or to the temptation of Jesus. We're going to use those skills tonight. So why did Matthew place this particular genealogy into his book, into his scroll? Was he looking for something to fill the air, fill the air time for that 17 verses? Or was he assigned um, by Elohim? Matthew, you must write at least 30 verses in this one chapter. We know it wasn't that way. In fact, what we're going to see and demonstrate is that this genealogy would be a crucial part for Matthew's account on the person and the deity and kinghood of Yeshua. So the purpose of this genealogy is to present the legal right of Yeshua to the throne of David. Many people come before and say, they're the Messiah, they're the Messiah. We had many Messiahs. In fact, Yeshua himself said, many Messiahs will come, many false Messiahs. And many have come in his name and have today been proven false because they died, right? Death is an equalizer. But with Yeshua, with the true Messiah, he will never die. And that's why his priesthood is like a Melchizedek. Melchizedek's priesthood is never ending. So of the four Gospels, only Matthew and Luke gives us Jesus' birth story. And each is given from a different perspective. Now, I don't know if when you read it, you would see these things, but I'm just going to share it with you. So Matthew, he goes on and he tells the birth narrative from Joseph's perspective, right? So Joseph plays this major active role while Mary is the passive you not even really hear of her in the passages. The angel comes and he speaks to Yosef Joseph, Mary's not mentioned anywhere whether the angel speaking to him or not Matthew tells of what Yosef or Joseph is thinking not what Mary is thinking and when you look at Luke everything is reversed it is told from Mary's perspective now. So Mary is playing the major role while Joseph is now in quiet mode. The angel comes to Mary and Luke and is not mentioned, is coming to Joseph. Luke tells what Mary was thinking in great detail and nothing of what Joseph said. But these particular aspects, if we pay attention to them and the context they're in, it shows that it is apparent that Matthew is giving Joseph's genealogy while that Luke is giving Mary's genealogy. So if you have that picture. 
So Matthew's account begins with Abraham and moves forward in time towards Jesus, while Luke runs the opposite way. He starts in the beginning with Jesus, and he works his way back, all the way back to Adam. Matthew, what he does, we're going to see shortly, he divides his genealogy into three groups of 14, and we're going to see why. It's interesting. Luke contains no divisions. He actually gives every single person from Adam all the way to Yeshua. So Matthew omits certain names in order to keep the pattern or the symmetry of the 14 names, while Luke omits zero names that we are aware of. Matthew traces the line of David through Solomon, while Luke traces the line of David through another of David's sons, Natan. And we're going to see this is critical in seeing um, Yeshua's genealogy and his right to his kingdom. So the question comes up, why do we need these two particular genealogies? Or why do we even need Joseph's genealogy? After all, he's not even Jesus' father, right? He's adopted. Right? He's a stepfather. Well, if you read commentaries outside of the you know, Jewish perspective, most of them would say Matthew gives the royal line and Luke gives the actual bloodline. And they also say that the purpose of Joseph's genealogy is to show that Yeshua was not only royal biologically, but also by adoption. But we're going to find out that the exact opposite would be true. So first, by the laws of Israel, one could not be king by virtue of adoption. Anybody is adopted in here? Can you adopt it again? So you cannot be on king of Israel. Sorry, this is kind of news to you. And most importantly, if Jesus' genealogy came through Joseph, if that was his true genealogy, then Jesus would not be qualified to be king. What? Hold on, we're going to look at this shortly. We're going to prove that that is so. So in Matthew's account, as we said, he edits names from the genealogy, from the full genealogy, in order to make three sets of 14 names. This is not done normally in uh, Jewish traditions and genealogies. Get the next picture. Green picture. Anyway. So he breaks them up into three categories from Abraham to David, to David to the Babylonian captivity, those 14, and the captivity, the out of captivity to the time of Yeshua. It was done this way in order to give us an overview, because two reasons why. First, to give us an overview of the three great periods in Jewish history, according to the theologians. You got that next picture? So there was five points. Whoa, that's very truncated. So the first point is the introduction in verse 1-1, which you've already read. Then it breaks down in the actual genealogy into three parts, which is what we just saw. Abraham to David, David to the captivity, and return to Babylon. And then 117 gives us the concluding um, summarizing of the numbers. So this approach does violate the normal Jewish tradition of not skipping names. 
So what Matthew is doing here is establishing and actually emphasizing the number 14. He purposely and deliberately skipped names to keep the symmetry of the number 14. Why does he do this? His audience are the Jews in Israel. He does this to keep his Jewish readers focused on the royal kingly line of David. And you might ask, how? How is he doing that with the number 14? In Judaism, every consonant letter has a numerical value. So if you study Hebrew, you learn all the letters, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, actually the alphabet, right? And then they go from 1 to 9, 10 to 20, and Kofresh, Shintab, all those become hundreds each. In Hebrew, in the name David, there are only three letters. Dalit, Bab, Dalit. I don't know what um, can they call it? Stylist pen. That's the finger pen right there. That's the first DVD actually. So in Hebrew, they, they don't, um, there's no vowels yet, so there's only vowel markers and vowel pointers. So that's Dalit, Bab, Dalit, so it's DVD. So the letters Dalit is four, Dalit Ben Gimel Dalit, and then Vav is six, and Dalit is four. So you end up with 14. So number 14, in the eyes of um, the Jews, represent King David. So what Matthew is trying to do is drive home the point that this Messiah is the direct lineage from King David. So the 14 is a numerical value of my name, that's my name, and King David's name. So this serves to underscore that Jesus is definitely the son of David, which would make him the rightful heir to the throne of David. So turn with me to Matthew 1.17, as we just read right through all those other 16 verses. Matthew 1.17 says, Therefore, all the generations of Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the time of Christ, 14 generations. He wanted to drive the point home, and now I get it. 14, the number of the man's name, King David. That's what the point he's trying to put across. Now Matthew also violated Jewish tradition by including women in his, uh, in his genealogy. But he didn't use prominent women like Sarah or Mishkah. He used these other women. Three Gentile women are in this Jewish genealogy. So if you look at the genealogy from Abraham to David in verses 2 through 6, we notice that in verse 2, this list starts with Abraham instead of Adam. Why is that? Because again, Matthew wanted to emphasize the Jewishness of this line and not necessarily humanity per se. So verse 2 says, To Abraham was born Isaac, Isaac Jacob, Jacob Judah, Judah Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. So Tamar is the first woman in this genealogy. And to Perez was born Hezron, to Hezron Ram, and to Ram was born Aminadab. 
and to Aminadab, Nashon, Nashon, Salman, and Salman was born Boaz by Rahab. And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and Obed, Yesi, and Yesi was born David the king. So why was this, these women like putting this genealogy? What were the characteristics of these women? All of these women had some form of sexual sin in their genealogy. It was Tamar. Tamar was known as a prostitute, but she also engaged in incest. Rahab, she was a prostitute, right? The harlot. But she also helped the Jews, right? The spies hide. What about Ruth? What did she do? Ruth was awesome. But she was a Moabitess. Anybody know what Moabites are? They were born from the ancestral relationship of Lot and his daughter. So Ruth is King David's great-grandmother. So they have this big uh, celebration here that we get to read uh, the book of Ruth. Now, anybody remember what Moab means? The name given to the son born to Lot and his daughter. Anybody remember what Moab means? Right. Moab means from father. Moab is a man which is from and of his father. So she named her son from father. So that particular son came from her father. A little weird, but... <laughs> but um, that was before the law, right? So there was no... Um, nothing was against you. couldn't do that. There was no law against that. So one reason Matthew does this is that he was highlighting how salvation is for the Gentile sinners also. God already had this pre-planned. So what did Jesus come to do? He came to save sinners. I mean, next to murder, sexual sin ranks high on the sinometer in the Bible, right? I mean, the meter in the Bible, like, the needle just buried when it comes to sexual sin. So all of these, all three of these women were Gentile women. <clears throat> all three of them were sinners. Another interesting thing is all of these had been raised in pagan families. But they were then brought into a covenant relationship with Yehovah and with his people. And all of these three women are in the line of Yeshua. So what Yeshua does or what Christianity does, they lift up the role of the woman in society. While Islam chops them down, I think even Buddhism chops them down, right? The women always in Japan, they're behind Hinduism. But Jesus, he always lifts up the role of the woman in the scriptures. And as husbands, we should do that too, right? Right? So verses 2 through 6, this is the first set of the 14 names. But what is interesting about this, any Jewish scholar from the days of Yeshua would have been familiar 
with these names. They were listed in the Chronicles of the Old Testament. That first Chronicles 28, 1-28. So these names were rooted in the history of Israel. Now this is a very important point. Because the life of Jesus is not some mystical, once upon a time fairy tale like Buddha and Hindu and whoever's. It is rooted in actual history. So Matthew is introducing a historical, historical account that took place in real time in the real world history. Now verses 6 to 12, we see the genealogy from David to Babylon. And David was born, and to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. So this is another woman name. You know who Uriah was? He was one of Dave's commanders. And Dave, uh, Uriah was out in the field fighting, and there Dave sees this Bathsheba on the roof. And she's written here as an adulteress, right? She said she also had a sexual sin. And to Solomon was born Rehoboam, and to Rehoboam, Abiah, and to Abiah, Asa. And to Asa was born Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, Yoram, and to Yoram, Isaiah, Isaiah, Yotam. Yotam, Ahaz, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was born Manasseh, Manasseh, Amon, and Amon, Josiah, and Josiah was born, remember this name, Jeconiah. Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Remember the name Jeconiah, we'll see him again. This is the second set of the 14 names. This set would also have been very familiar to the Jewish scholars again of the first century. These names were to the Jews, it was like a list of the presidents of the United States of America. Masami used to read, recite all the presidents forwards and backwards. I can name two. Today he can name them. Like Obama and who? Like he five. <laughs> Not 45, he forgot 40. But he used to rip them out before when he was in school. So the verses are the genealogy from Babylon to Jesus. So verse 12, the deportation to Babylon to Jeconiah was born Shaltiel, Zerubbabel, Abihud, Abihud, Eliakim, Azor, Azor, Zadok, Zadok, Achim, Achim, Eliad, Eliad, Eliazad, Eliazar Matan, Matan Yaakov, and Yaakov was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So this final section of the genealogy follows from Jeconiah all the way down to Joseph. They were all descendants of King David, but none of these men through this line ever sat upon the throne of Judah. None of them were ever king. Now when Zerubbabel returned to the land after the Babylonian captivity, he held the position of governor over Judah, but he never attempted or even was called the king. So we take special note at Jeconiah's name in the lineage of Joseph, which we saw in verse 11, Jeconiah and his brothers in verse 12, Jeconiah became the father of Shaltiel. Now there are two requirements in Israel for kingship. One of them was you had to be a king of Davidic, uh, you had to be of a Davidic descent of the southern kingdom 
of Judah, which throne was established in Jerusalem. The second requirement of the northern kingdom of Israel, a kingship, was by either a prophet saying, you're a king because God told me, or a divine appointment where Jehovah just says, you are the king. So turn with me now to Luke, uh, to Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah 22, verse 24 and 25. This regards the curse of Jeconiah, which will add one more dimension or another requirement to these two previous requirements. Jeremiah 22, 24 reads, As I live, declares Jehovah, even though Coniah, which is a contracted form of Jephaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring, signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. It's like he would, if that was his powerful ring, he would pull off that ring and toss it. And I shall give you over to the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and into the hand of the Chaldeans. So they were leaving. They were going to exit Babylon. So verse 30, we just go fast forward to verse 30. It goes on to point out that Jeconiah would be considered to be childless. It would be as though his line would have ended right here. Verse 30 says in Jeremiah 22, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. So anyone coming from the line of Solomon will be disqualified from being a king because of the Jeconiah curse. So from this passage, that additional requirement for kingship is that the proper king could not be sinned from the line of Jeconiah. So if Jesus had been born the son of the line of Joseph, the actual son of Joseph, what would happen? He couldn't be our king today. He would have been disqualified to be our king and we would be waiting here. We would probably have to do a, giving our sacrifices every year. Because what the sacrifices did every year, you'd go up to Jerusalem, sacrifice your animal for your family, and what it did was cover your sins. It just covered it. It pulled up so nobody could see it. But next year, you'd have to do the same thing again, over and every single year. But with this sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, that's why John the Baptist said, Yohanan HaMakbil, he said, Look, Behold, he made the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, not cover it. He actually dealt with it. So Matthew's Jewish audience knows this. And how does Matthew solve this problem of the Jeconiah curse? In verse 18, he begins the virgin birth. So Joseph had nothing to do with the birth of Jesus, which is good because whether he was, uh, if he actually came to the bloodline of Joseph through Solomon, Jesus would have been disqualified. 
That's good news. Have you got good news in the book of Luke? Luke does not have that Jeconiah problem. He got straight. He goes, uh, his audience is actually just Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. What he does is he traces Yeshua's genealogy all the way back to Adam. Because Jesus' humanity is vital in Luke's account or Luke's perspective. So Luke, unlike Matthew, he sticks to the Jewish traditional formulas for genealogy. He does not skip any names. He has a longer list. And he does not include any women's names. With that, we bring up another question. If you wanted to trace a woman's genealogy according to Jewish tradition, how would you do that? If you couldn't use a woman's name? <laughs> now we, now we're, getting, we're having a serious problem. The answer is that you would substitute the woman's name with her husband's name. Okay, so even today, right? Some women are called by their husband's name. Right? Mrs. David Tomorrow. Come up here, Mrs. David Tomorrow. <laughs> That's what they do. So if a woman's husband's name appears on her genealogy and his genealogy, how can you tell whose is what? The solution is found in knowing the Greek. The Greek uses a definite article before every proper name. So you would be called uh, the Nathan or the Michael, Michaels, or the Danielle, you know, they call the Kevin. That's how Greek and Hebrew works. That's, that's how they do. So every name in the list in Luke has a definite article before it, except Joseph's name. So the Greek readers, which all of the Jews were, would have noticed and would have indicated this, that this is not Joseph's line that we're reading. But we're reading his wife's line in keeping with Jewish practice by substituting the husband name for the wife's name. You have that on Luke 3, 23. So this is just to so, um, if you go to the bottom, is it on Puyas on end of mid -seto? So right there, you see, did you see Joseph? Okay. So Joseph, he doesn't have that to Heli. You see that name Heli? There's a definite article like the, a T-O-U is like a the. But before Joseph's name, there is no the. So I go to the next one. So these are the, the other names in, in the genealogy. To Matat, to Leu, to Melchim, to Yanai. Every other name has that definite article except Joseph's name. And that's how any Jew, any Greek, reading the genealogy of Yeshua, will know, go back down there, because it was missing that definite article that this genealogy was of Miriam. So the Hebrew name for Mary is Miriam. So in, in rabbinic writings, even in Greek writings, they write 
Miriam, the daughter of Hedi. So instead of Joseph's name, they put Miriam's name there. Now there are other places in the Old Testament where husband's name were substituted for a wife's name. You find it in Ezra and in Nehemiah. One thing I'd like to know, in Luke verse 31, in Mary's line, it includes David's son. This is another separation here. It includes David's son, Nathan, or Nathan. Separate, or instead of Solomon, David's other son, we're going to see the genealogy picture later. David's other son, through whom Joseph's descendants were cursed from sitting on this very throne. So verse 31 of Luke 3, it says, The son of Meleah, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Natan, the son of David. So, the line of Mary was free from the Gentile curse. And Mary, through this genealogy, was a member of the house of David, separate or apart from the cursed line of Jeconiah. So in Matthew 1.1, we are told that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. He is the one to fulfill the Davidic and Abrahamic covenant. In Luke 3.38, it says the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. What these two verses comprise of, when you take it both from the two genealogies, it comprises of the four sonships of the Messiah and who he is. So Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the son of David, Ben David, Hamelet Midaloi, he is the king. Ben Abraham, Ayudi. He is a Jew. Luke 3.38, he says, the son of Adam. What is that? What does that make him? The son of man, that means his humanity. And it also says in 3.38, the son of God. He is God. So you put these four names together, these four things, you find out that Messiah is the Messianic Jewish God, man, king. And that's what you can learn from these two genealogies there. Yeshua is Jewish. Yeshua is God himself. Yeshua is man. He actually is sitting at the right. Who's sitting at the right hand of the Father? Second Timothy says, the man Christ Jesus. Our mediator, Jesus himself, in the flesh, is sitting on the throne in heaven today. So from Matthew's genealogy, he fixes the curse with going straight into the virgin birth. From Luke's vantage point, he goes straight from the genealogy to the temptation of the Messiah to continue to further prove and assert the Messiah's humanity as he would get hungry and he was uh, fasting. He would show his Jewishness, his kingship because he had charge over the angels, but it also shows his deity. Yeah, that, that's the So now, when you look at this genealogy, it should be easier to see that from Adam, before Adam, there was a reset of creation. After Noah, there was another reset of creation. 
And then came along Abraham to David to Jesus. So he's the God man, he's a Jew, and he's king. And that's where, when you go to the bottom, that's Solomon's genealogy. You go to the top, that's Nathan's genealogy. And when you come around on the bottom, you see Jeconiah, and you see Joseph. So that rules out Yeshua's line, no relation. But when you look up on Nathaniel's, Nathan, all the way to Mary, and he is the true rightful king sitting on the throne. So what can we do with all of this information? Rejoice. Rejoice. And be able to share these, these things with Jews and with Gentiles. Be ready in season and to show. Hey, Matthew and Luke wanted to show us that Jesus was a Jew. He was God. He was what? A human. And he was a man. Let us pray. Papa, you're so detailed. And the thing, Lord, that we look back, we saw that the temple, Lord, you said that the temple, not one stone would stand upon another. And the records of your genealogy was held in that temple, Lord, burnt. What that means, Lord, is that the Messiah had to come before the destruction of Elisa. Your word is so exact and detailed. Thank you for allowing us, Lord, to your spirit to see truth in your word and constancy. You're so good to us. Thank you for your knowledge, your foreknowledge, and your insight and your willingness to share it with our finite minds. But you knew, Lord, that we'll be able to comprehend certain things, Lord, but it'll take us an eternity, Lord, to learn of your great wisdom. So, Lord, as we um, reflect on your lineage and the extent that you went to life on our behalf, all we have to say is mahalo. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. And grandma used to go over there, but she hadn't been going for a while. So since we went, we were going to meet them, then she came along. Man. God, God is so good. <clears throat> and she, my cousin over there, she used to be married to a Mahini. So I just prayed for her like, a couple of years. <clears throat> And they had moved to uh, Seattle. <laughs> Her wife was familiar with that. Right? So she came back. I mean, okay, I don't know how the Lord can do it. She came back. She went to New Hope. She went to all different churches and she ended up at New Hope and she received a lot of you. So that was an honor blessing. And then I think Wednesday. When did she come? Shabli. So Charlotte, our uh, soon-to-be adopted 
adult daughter. Her sister just came from Colombia with her baby. So I, she said our house. She said, just put, like, keep counting. So she's, she came in, she lost the luggage, flight delayed, everything. But she came in with her one-year-old son. It's been a blessing to have them. And Char has like a sister, like one for real sister. <laughs> so they're um, getting all their paperwork together. Not to mention my other niece and her daughter that's living with us too. They just gonna give her the next year um, private school like you know uh, give her a free tuition for next year now her mom because I help at the church whatever I can to just say I thank you guys for uh, do what you guys do God is awesome <clears throat> So they're gonna um, they ask my niece to work like forty hours a month over there. I was like, wow, it's like two hours a day, eh? Five days. I was like, wow, hallelujah. She would try to get her own place, so she get social security because she used to be a drug addict. <clears throat> but you gotta make three times the amount the uh, rent. So the rent was twelve hundred. She didn't make that much, but so I told her, you know, you can stay with us as long as the Lord does not rush anything. This God is good. So pray for the Ohana. God is incredible. God bless you, babe. Hey, God is awesome. Let us bless our Torah this evening as we went through our Genesis. Father, your Torah is holy, Lord. And your law, Lord, changes people. It's like a mirror, Lord. And we have to uh, look at the problems in our lives, Lord, and be um, honest with it. And as we are, Lord, you are faithful and just to change us, Lord, from the inside out. Not from the outside, Lord, and we have nice clothes or whatever, but you change us, Lord from the inside. <laughs> we thank you that you're willing to live inside of us. <laughs> oh, Lord. But from the beginning of time, like you chose us. And you waited, Lord, until we came to you. So from this point forward, Lord, we just continue to ask that you change us, Lord. From glory to glory to the likeness of your Son, that we might win some to you, Lord. Let our lives, Lord, be a, be a beacon, Lord, of your love. That all might know, Lord, of your goodness and of your grace. Bless your word, Lord. You see me and you show us me. Amen. So we're going through Genesis and we just uh, we started from chapter 1. Long ago, but we're on chapter 28 now. So, first, what we're going to do tonight, we're going to take a quick look back at the Genesis account of these three patriarchs. And the actual study will be on the last of the patriarchs' story. 
Yaakov or Isaac. The main three patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So if you come from that lineage, you are Jewish uh, blood. If not, then you're Gentile. So either you're Jew or a Gentile. So after the Tower of Babel, where he confused the language and created 70 nations, came Avram. Avram is exalted father. That's what it means, Avram. So Avram was called out of this pagan nation. Oh, did he go up? He timed out. So he came out of this pagan nation, the Earl of Chaldees. Now Ur in Hebrew means city. So he came out of a city in Chaldea. Come on. I mean. <laughs> so after that, his name was changed from exalted father, Avram, to Avraham, which means father of the nations. But for over 20 years, the funny thing was, the father of the nations had no children. So everybody, what's your name? Avraham? Oh, where's all your kids? Wow, I have no children right so his wife Sarai, Sarah, was barren for 20 years. And that seems to play throughout Genesis. Like every major uh, woman in scripture was barren for a time, at least 20 years, also with Ripka. So Elohim made an everlasting covenant with Abraham that we know as the Abrahamic covenant. What he was promised there was a portion of land, a dynasty, a kingdom, and that all of the world would be blessed by this one man, Abraham. And inevitably we know that it was through Yeshua. Three of the biggest world religions revere him. Islam, they have about a billion and a half worshippers, Christianity, and Judaism. All of these three religions look to um, Abraham as their head of their religion. Man, I need that. And Elohim said, anyone who blesses you shall be blessed, and anyone who curses you shall be cursed. So be careful now what you do to the Jews. <laughs> A lot of anti-Semitic um, forums out there or belief systems are out there. So blessed are anyone who curses you and whoever curses you shall be cursed with the exact same kind of curse that you curse Israel with. And what we're going to look at tonight is sort of what you bless Israel with is what God's going to bless you too with. But if I have this thing... No signal. Yeah, And we get back to Abraham and that blessing. So what happened? Famine came to the land of Canaan, and against the Lord's will, Abraham goes down into Egypt. While in Egypt, he tells 
Pharaoh a half-truth, that Sarah was his sister, not his wife. Because what kings would do, they wouldn't like to commit adultery. So what they would do is kill the husband. They had no problem murdering someone. And once they murdered someone, then they would marry the widow, and they would look good to the people. So they were in danger, but Adonai intervenes, ends up, Pharaoh kicks him out of Egypt and gives him a lot of wealth, a lot of uh, livestock and money. And then next, <laughs> Isaac comes along after 20 years of marriage. The same thing happens. A famine comes into the land. But it's a funny thing. It's only in the land of Canaan where the Jews live. If you went outside to Moab, no family, only in the land of Israel. So he saw this king, Avimelech, and Yitzhak also endangered the life of him and his wife. And they endangered that uh, promised seed line. But once again, Elohim intervenes, and the king takes them out of the land and gives wealth to them. And for Rivka too, they had no children until 20 years. Oh, okay. What's on that one? Everybody look back there. <laughs> Go back to the... I see the, Trump on that. <laughs> is that Trump? The name Trump. Let's go back to the beginning. Yeah, from here. Almost. Okay. Yeah. Oh, stop this one. That's the beginning. What? I don't know what's going on here. Cast you out.
So Isaac is born, and this is born. Yeah. And they were twins, so they were, um, before they were born, while they were in the womb, they were fighting each other from the beginning. But from the beginning, the Lord had already promised that the older would serve the younger, and that Jacob would be the one that would receive the blessings. So the Hebrew says, Vayitzatsetsu, he says, the sons struggle within him. Literally in the Hebrew means to crush or to smash each other while in the womb. That's what they were doing. These twins were crushing each other and wrestling in the womb, fighting it out. So they were uh, pater paternal twins, not identical twins. How do we know that? Because one of them was hairy. <laughs> And then the, the term used is hypertrichosis, hyper which is a hair disorder. It's called the werewolf disorder, or a werewolf um, syndrome. I had pictures of all this, but again. <laughs> so anyway, the guy looks like a werewolf, and his hands like long hair, all the way through his body, there's long hair. That's why when they kill the goat, oh, there that guy. It's like, go back. Oh, he's like, yeah. Everybody turn around. But anyway, he got the gold. They killed the gold. They killed the gold. And they took the skin and they put it around um, Yaakov's arms so that they could deceive the dead. They put on Esau's clothes so they could have that smell. So you, if you look at the gold, they're so hairy. But when um, the dad touched it, he was like, "Huh, is that you, my son? The only thing that didn't work was the, his voice. His voice kind of threw him off. But Isaac thought he was going to die real soon. So his, he thought that he couldn't hear, he couldn't make on anything too well. So what we're going to do is start with Genesis 27, uh, 41. So verse 41 says, So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother. So the birthright again belonged to the younger son, Yaakov, from within the womb. But his father, Isaac, favored Esau and wanted to bless him instead of Jacob. But Elohim's promise and will shall come to pass. So at this point, Isaac thought that he was near death. And so Esau, his favorite son, felt the same way. Since my dad is going to die soon, then I will have a clear conscience to kill my brother. My dad wouldn't feel sad. But it ends up his dad lives another 20 years or more. Verse 42 says, now when the words of his elder son, Esau, were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son, her favorite son, Jacob, 
and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself or riling himself up concerning you by, and planning to kill you. So she's usually within an earshot of what's going on, but a servant comes and tells her, Hey, Esau wants to kill Jacob. So she tells him, and they ask him this. She says, So now you, my son, hear or obey my voice. The Hebrew word here, vechum, means arise. So vechum, arise, brachlecha, and flee, elavan achi chalada. So arise, flee to lavan, my brother who lives in Haran. A Hebrew word for arise, remember when Yeshua used the word and he uh, told that little girl to rise? The same word. He said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, rise. Because he said, she's not dead. She's only sleeping, right? She was uh, in a state of um, suspended animation. So no animation, just, it's like when you sleep, you, you don't move. So to him, she was still alive, but she was actually dead. But Yeshua had the power over death and the grave. So she looked as if she was in a state of death. Her body had no movement, just like when we sleep. But some people, you know when you're sleeping, because you hear snoring. And I, I'm like one of those guys. <laughs> so with the skills that Esau had, you know, they say they likened him to the hunter Nimrod. So he was a great hunter. To his mother, she felt that Jacob was already a dead man. Now the interesting part here is just like her husband, Isaac was a dead man to his father, Abraham, for those three days that took them to reach Mount Moriah, where Yitzhak was going to be sacrificed by Abraham. And the text said that Yehovah will provide himself as a sacrifice, which means eventually Jesus will become the Lamb of God. And they saw a ram in the thicket. They sacrificed that, uh, that, lamb, that ram. And it was, of course, a picture of the future sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Now, what the Lamb of God's sacrifice was, that he came to take away the sins of the world. What happens in Judaism that every year they would have to go and kill an animal, make a sacrifice for their sins every single year. It just covered their sins. The word is kofar. It would just cover their sins. But what this particular lamb would do, he wouldn't just cover it. He would take away the sins. So this was the final sacrifice for sins. No more sacrifices in the temple of Jerusalem. Yeshua was the final sacrifice to sin. And that's why Yeshua on the cross, he said, it is finished. The work of redemption was finished. But one last thing concerning sleep. Sleep in the New Testament became a technical term for believers who die in Yeshua. Because their bodies are not animated, which is the material part of the human. But the immaterial part, the soul and the spirit, is where life resides. So when we die, our soul and the spirit go up to the Lord. So this life we live 
in this heavenly body once you get to heaven. So you're not, you're not going to have this body. You're going to have a heavenly body until the rapture comes. And when the rapture comes, the Bible says, those who are asleep in Yeshua will rise first. So those in the grave, the, the, the mortal will put on immortality and the corrupted, which is those who are dead, will put on incorruption. So these bodies that are corrupted in their graves will rise up first with those who are dead and they'll meet their spirit in the air and then they will be with the Lord. And then it says, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. And we too, as soon as we hit the atmosphere, our, we will have our glorified bodies. So the, the ones who are sleeping will precede those who are alive in the Lord. So verse 44 says, Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides. This will end up 20 some odd years. Until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what you did to him. Then I will send and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of both of you in one day? So she didn't want both of them to die. So by the time Jacob actually comes back home after leaving for Haran, his mother would have died. So Rebecca will never see her favorite son again once he leaves. So in this sense, back in uh, chapter 27, Jacob didn't want to deceive his father. But she told him, she prompted him, no, you have to do this. And what Rebecca said is, I will take the curse. And this is one of the things that the rabbi said, this would be the curse that will befall her, that she would never see her favorite son ever again after he leaves her sight. Verse 46, Rebecca said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the two daughters of Heth. Now the two daughters of Heth were the two wives that Esau took, these Hittite women, as wives. He says, if Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like these two, my two daughter-in-laws, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? So these two wives of Esau were a major source of problems and grief for both Isaac and Rebekah. The hope is lost. <laughs> oh, wait. What if the Chinese church get that same problem? So verse 1 of chapter 28. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. So what he does is he listens to his wife, good man, his smart. And he advises his son Jacob to marry a wife from, him, from her family, which is actually his family in Haran. He says, Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. From there, take yourself a wife from the daughters of Lavan, or Laban, your mother's brother. Perfect for uh, Rebecca. Jacob will convey his brother, uh, his, his contract uh, on his life, and then he would marry a wife from her own family. This is exactly what she wanted. Funny thing is, Jacob received the exact instructions that his grandfather Abraham gave to his servant about a hundred years earlier to find Isaac 
his battle bride in the same place, Haran. And that's where he found Rivka. Now remember, it was very dangerous for the promised seed, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to leave the land because of the threat of being murdered by other kings. So verse 3, he says, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you that you may possess the land of your sojournings which God gave to Abraham. What he's doing here is reaffirming and establishing the Abrahamic covenant through Jacob. And he used God Almighty, El Shaddai, our favorite song, and El Shaddai. Isaac heard the stories of how his father and mother lived even after lying to the king of Egypt. And what happened? They too were blessed. Even Isaac himself survived the encounter with King Abimelech, who also blessed him with wealth. So him experiencing how great Elohim is, recognized Elohim's faithfulness to the seed. So he knows that Jacob will succeed and endure. So the word El Shaddai, that name, means he is able to accomplish anything. Nothing is impossible for him. He is wholly capable for fulfilling the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaac knew exactly how El Shaddai protected him, and he was confident that he would do the same for his son Jacob. Now as far as um, Isaac is concerned, this is the last we're going to hear of him until his death in chapter 35. An interesting thing is, Isaac lives another 50 years, but nothing is recorded of his life. I guess he was so laid back and just didn't want to have anything to do. He just hung out and did nothing. So verse 5 says, Then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went north about 450 miles away, 500 miles, to Padam Aram, to Lavan, or Laban, his brother the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. So he goes up to Ben Amaran, and now they focus back down in Canaan. So now Esau, in verse 6, saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take himself a wife from there. And that when he blessed him, charged him, saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone and he went up 500 miles away. So what Jacob does, he listens and right away he heads out to find the wife in Haran. In verse 8, so Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan, the two that he married, displeased his father Isaac and even his mother. So what he was thinking was, by not marrying another Canaanite woman, he would win back his father's favor and possibly a more significant blessing. And he wanted to add to that saying, if he married in the family, stronger blood, he might garner his father's um, favor. Because right? uh, Abraham loved Ishmael. So verse nine says that Esau went to Ishmael, his uncle, and married. Besides the two wives that he had, 
he married the daughter of Ishmael, Mahala, Abraham's son, a sister of Nebaioth. So Mahalath means sickness in Hebrew. Sickness all over. And Nebaioth, Ishmael's son, means faithfulness. So I guess Nebaioth actually had to be the one to give away his sister because his father had already passed. So basically, Jacob marries his cousin because he thought he might... Um, Esau. Uh, yeah, Esau married his cousin and to please his father. So she was a descendant of Abraham through Ishmael. But this just magnifies Esau's lack of spiritual perception and understanding. He, he didn't recognize the problem. He didn't recognize that Ishmaelites were just as rejected as the Canaanites and the Philistines. So ironically, the rejected son of Isaac, Esau, married the rejected son of Abraham, the line of Ishmael, his daughter. So these two rejected ones have given a wife to Esau. So at any rate, he failed to impress his parents and they really don't say anything about the marriage. So verses um, 10 to 22, we look at um, Jacob's dream. I'm sorry, they all have all these PowerPoint actions. So, so then Jacob departed in verse 10 from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he lived in Beersheba all of his life and now he must travel about 500 miles to Padanaran and end up in Haran. Verse 11 says, He came to a certain place and spent the night there. And this we'll see will soon be Bethel. Because the sun had set and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in this place. So here is a wealthy man, wealthy young man. I don't know how old is he now. Maybe he's 60, 50. He's used to sleeping in a tent. The probably a soft pillow. But tonight, his pillow is a rock. And his tent is the canopy of stars. And what he did was he gathered some stones to not only rest his head on, but just in case for defense purposes. So the same term here is used when uh, one of the warriors in the Bible put his spear down, he picked up the spear and left it next to him. So what he did, he gathered the stones for safety because he felt that he was alone and needed to protect himself. But little did he know that Adonai was not only there to protect him, but to bolster his faith. Now this is also true of us believers. The Lord is within us. He lives within us. You might not think yet, but He lives. The Father, Son, and the Spirit live within us. And what happens is, if we don't tap into that faith that He lives in us, then our lives sometimes is hard to live a faithful life. So the landscape of Bethel is a pretty rocky, that picture. So what he did was he put the rocks on, he looked at the sky, and he had a dream. And he says in verse 12, he had a dream, and behold, a sulam, or a ladder, but actually it's called a staircase or a stairwell, was set on the earth, so like, a, I guess, a stairs setting up, with the top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angel of God 
the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. This was no ordinary staircase. This staircase at the bottom, I guess was like an escalator. And then the angels was flying up and down where Jacob was. And the top was all the way to heaven. So you remember uh, in Babel, they were trying to build to God, right? The ziggurat or whatever. But here the verse is, oh, this is how it's done. Zoom. The stairway. So the dream pictures Jacob having access to heaven. And the angels of God were there with him. Now, in the book of Genesis, a phrase, Hamalachi Elohim, or the angels of God, is found in two places. Here, when um, Jacob is leaving the land, and the next time is when Jacob comes back into the land. The same phrase, Hamalachi Elohim, will be used when Jacob comes back into the land. And they were pictured ascending and descending. Now almost 2,000 years in the future from Jacob's day to Yeshua's day, there was a devout Israelite. Anybody know his name? He was one of our disciples. And his name was, like my son, Nathanael. What Nathanael was doing in Jesus' day he was meditating under a fig tree on God's word. So in those days, it was impossible for everyone to have a Torah scroll. So what they did was go into the temple, look at the Torah, memorize it, come back out of the temple, and sit under that fig tree. Now the fig tree not only gave shade, but it gave you a chance to meditate and memorize the scriptures. So the rabbis, of that time in the first century, the rabbi said the best place to meditate and receive a blessing from Yehovah was under the fig tree. In fact, some rabbis would take their disciples and sit under the fig tree where they felt that their disciples would understand the scriptures better and quicker. So when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said to him, look at this guy. A true Israelite in whom there is nothing false, no guile or no deceit. So Nathaniel wanted to know how Yeshua knew that he was, uh, he knew him. He answered, he said, I saw you, Nathaniel, while you were sitting under the fig tree before your brother called you. And Nathaniel said a very curious thing. He said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. I mean, just because Jesus said, I saw you sitting under the fig tree, now you believe I'm the uh, Son of God? What's going on? So during the time of Christ, you would expect Jews to be sitting under the fig tree. No, that's what they did. So what made Nathaniel believe in Yeshua that he was the Messiah? So the first thing was, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. So Jesus knew the exact chapter Nathaniel was meditating on, and it was on this particular chapter. But if Nathaniel was a true Israelite with whom there was nothing false, that would mean there was an Israelite who had deceit and guile in his heart. And that was Laban. So Laban was a deceitful uncle of Jacob. I remember a lot of people give Jacob a bad name. 
But Jacob had lied to his dad against his own will. Because he was forced by his mother to do that. And again, she bore the curse for Jacob. So how can we be sure that Yeshua <coughs> Nathaniel was meditating on Genesis 28? He goes on and says, Jesus then said, You shall see heaven open up, and Hamalachim Elohim, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So this was the exact vision that Jacob had seen in his dream. In other words, Jacob had seen in his dream. In other words, Jesus claimed to be that particular stairway. The only means to get from earth to heaven was through Yeshua. That's the only way. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Yeshua, the Messiah. So even when you go to Israel, you feel like that's the gateway to heaven, the stairway to heaven. Verse 13 says, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Jacob, the land which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you spread out to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Once again, this is a reconfirmation of the Abrahamic covenant through his seed, Jacob. Now Yeshua did say the same thing. He said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And the Bible also says that nothing can separate us from the love of Adonai. So we notice in the blessing. The Lord didn't say anything negative to Jacob. He could have said, you're a sinner, you're a liar, you're a deceiver. He didn't say that. Because Jacob was a righteous man. If you're a believer in Yeshua, he will not leave you or forsake you. Sometimes you feel like you're all alone. It's like Jacob did when he was sleeping. But according to the promises of the Bible, the Lord will fulfill his ministry in and through you. In verse 16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Yes, Yahweh, He said, Surely, this is the place of the Lord. And he did not know it. So verse 17, he was afraid, and he said, How awesome. So this place, when you go there, it is awesome. He was saying, this place in Israel is awesome. It's a reverential fear of the place. He says, There is none other this is none other, this place is none other than Beit Elohim, which is, this is the house of God. And this is Sha'ar HaShemayim, the gate of heaven. So whenever you go to Israel, you feel like you're like one step away from the Lord. The Lord is like right there, and you see 
the scriptures unfold in real time in your life. So verse 18, almost to the end. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of the place Beit Elohim, which is Bethel. It's a shortened version. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. So he probably was riding on a camel or donkey going from Bethel, from Beersheba to Bethel takes about it's about 20 to 25 miles if you go in a caravan but Jacob was traveling light so he traveled about 40 to 45 miles from Beersheba past Jerusalem up to Bethel so Yaakov traveled about 45 40 miles for that first day that's a lot of miles to go in one day I mean you run from marathon day one couple hours yet, it was 26. I don't know how long he took to get there. So he reached this predetermined place that Elohim had made a divine appointment with him. He made the sun go down at the right time, and this was all not by chance. So the Lord led him there, whether Yaakov knew it or not, he made the sun go down, and he calls this place Bethel, the house of God. This is the exact place that Abraham, his grandfather, also built a place of worship, an altar there. So the grandfather and his grandson built at the same place, a place of worship. So this is the first time that Adonai reveals himself to Jacob in a dream. Now the book of Hebrews says that God used to speak to his prophets in many different ways in the past. The dreams, theophany, uh, to the Shekinah glory, whether it's a light, fire, or cloud. But today, the Bible says in Hebrews, He speaks to us through His Son, the Word of God. So today, the Lord doesn't necessarily talk to us through dreams and visions. But if He does, it must be tested against the standard of Scriptures. And it must be consistent with it. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, do not go beyond what is written. And many churches today go beyond what is written. Verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. What? <laughs> wow. Again, conditions. I will put these conditions all on God. But that is how the Abrahamic covenant is. It's unilateral. God will make it come to pass. Can make it easier if we follow his path. But he will make it come to pass. So that is a pretty good assessment of the Abrahamic covenant. If God does that, and I will surely lift his name up. So he was totally confident that he would return home safely. Why? Because he was seeking first the kingdom of God. And what happens? All of these things will be added unto him. Food and clothing, a house and safe travels. Verse 22, the last verse. This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house 
And all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So just as his grandfather built an altar there, he too built an altar and worshipped Elohim. And he goes on and travels north to Haran. So with that, we just uh, end there. I don't think stops, but we end there. Let us pray that we can partake in our uh, bread in the cup. Father, you know all things. <laughs> they didn't have PowerPoints back in Jesus' day. So we thank you that uh, you remind us, Lord, of your power, Lord. We don't need all that electronic things. All we need is your word. And when we deliver your word, it will accomplish what it was uh, called to do. So we thank you for showing us, Lord, that you really are in charge. And that we should depend on you and all that you have for us. So Lord, be with us as we partake in the bread and the cup, Lord. Make our hearts right, Lord, in our minds. If not, we ask that you forgive us right now, Lord. All of the things that we we know that we're missing the mark on, Lord, the things of commission, Lord. But we also ask for forgiveness for the things that sometimes we overlook. So we thank you that you can um, forgive every single sin, Lord, no matter what. We thank you, Lord, for loving us. In Yeshua's name we pray.